Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We are physicians and professors at Yale University, and we're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. This week, we will be speaking with Yale School of Public Health professor Ijeoma Opara, hearing about her work to incorporate cultural strengths into prevention programs for urban minority youth. But first, we like to check in on current health news. Harlan, what has caught your attention this week in healthcare? Well, thanks, Howie. This week, you know, the community, community in academia and in global health was stunned by the news of, of Paul Farmer's passing. Paul Farmer, well-known to many, uh, an American medical anthropologist and physician, but, but really so much more. He is chair of the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine at Harvard, the co-founder and chief strategist of Partners in Health, an international nonprofit organization that since 1987 has provided healthcare services and, and undertaken research and advocacy on behalf of those who are sick and living in poverty throughout the world, throughout the world, and, and has been part of administration efforts, government efforts, nonprofit efforts, obviously deeply invested in the work in Haiti. And I wanted to just take a minute today to reflect on Paul, and I thought the best way to do that was just to just to read some of the quotes from Paul. He inspired so many, so his work will go on, but what a loss. Uh, he was in Rwanda to, to receive an award and uh, uh, died in his sleep, and it, it's just so unfortunate. Okay, here's some quotes. The idea that some lives matter less is the root of all that's wrong in the world. Uh, and, and that's so exemplified, I think, how Paul approached things. Uh, here's some more. Quote, if I'm hungry, that's a material problem. If someone else is hungry, that's a spiritual problem. Here's another quote. It's very expensive to give bad medical care to poor people in a rich country. Uh, with rare exceptions, all of your most important achievements on this planet will come from working with others, or in a word, partnership. Another one, managing inequality almost never includes higher standards of care for those whose agency has been constrained, whether by poverty or by prison bars. And anyone who's listening, you can go on online and see a lot of what he's written. He wrote a book called Pathologies of Power, Health, Human Rights, and the New War on the Poor, and, and really you know, invested himself in, in these ideas. He said, in this inner, increasingly interconnected world, we must understand that what happens to poor people is never divorced from actions of the powerful. Certainly, people who define themselves as poor may control their own destinies to some extent, but control of lives is related to control of land, systems of production, and the formal political and legal structures in which lives are enmeshed. With time, both wealth and control have become increasingly concentrated in the hands of the few. The opposite trend is desired by those working for social justice. And then finally, do we see human disparity as a human predicament, an inescapable result of frailty of our existence? That would be correct had these sufferings been really inescapable, but they are far from that. Preventable disease can indeed be prevented. Curable ailments can certainly be cured. Incontrollable maladies call out for control. Rather than lamenting the adversity of nature, we have to look for better comprehension of the social causes of horror and also of our tolerance of societal abominations. So, you know, part of this episode, you know, I think we should dedicate to Paul. We have a remarkable guest coming to us next who's been working deeply with communities and and helping those who are disenfranchised and trying to figure out how to 
strengthen their position and improve their health. So I, I think it's a good day maybe for us. I would like to have us dedicate that. But uh, I want to just take a, anyway, a few moments to talk about them. So how about you, uh, Howie? What's on your mind this week? Yeah, first, I just want to say, you know, I never met Paul Farmer, but I don't think there's anybody in medicine who has influenced my students more than Paul Farmer. I, I can't even begin to tell you the list of students who either went into medicine or did what they did, starting nonprofits, working uh, on health equity because of Paul Farmer. And one of my students yesterday, when I sent him a text saying uh, that I'm very sorry, he, he was very close with Paul Farmer. I just visited with him a few months ago. And he said, I cried all morning. Um, and, and he said, I was having a hard time not crying in the operating room. So this is a man who touched many lives, including the development of young talent. And I think his legacy will continue through them. Um, I'll pivot to talk about what I wanted to talk about this week, which is, you know, I was teaching about externalities this week, and I could give you the formal quote of externalities, but I think I'll, I'll skip over that and just say externalities when some positive or negative effect is felt by someone who's not party to a transaction. For instance, you might decide to consume cigarettes and you suffer the harm for smoking those cigarettes, but us others also suffer from the secondhand smoke and they were never part of the deal and that's a negative externality. Well, antibiotic resistance is another example of a negative externality that occurs from the overuse or overprescription of antibiotics. And uh, last week, a report came out in the CDC's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, which highlights that in the Medicare population, about 41% of all antibiotic prescriptions are written by 10% of the prescribers. And, and there's numerous studies that have now demonstrated that uh, some physicians do tend to overprescribe. And, and it's true also that patients frequently go to doctors looking for a prescription, looking for an antibiotic, and physicians may feel compelled to oblige. But there are real costs to society. In the United States alone, 35,000 people die each year from antibiotic-resistant organisms, and 2.8 million people suffer from one of these infections. We all have a stake in reducing the development of antibiotic resistance, even though individually we may want to be treated for a mild illness sooner rather than later. We may think that's in our personal best interest. There are guidelines and stewardship considerations that can help us reduce overprescription. And I want to just bring this back to the pandemic because there is, again, a need for some collectivism over individualism. But it's a lot easier said than done. And I, I hope that the public in public health uh, comes around to understanding that we are all in this together and we all benefit from working together on these issues. Great. Great. Couldn't agree more. All right. Here we go. Excited to introduce my colleague, Dr. Ijeoma Opara. Um, she is an assistant professor at the Yale School of Public Health in the Department of Social and Behavioral Sciences. Her research interests focus on HIV AIDS and STI prevention, substance abuse prevention in urban youth and health disparities among girls of color. She has received many awards for her work in prevention research from the American Public Health Association and Ansel Council on Family Relations and Academy Health. She also founded the Substance Abuse and Sexual Health Lab, SASH, which uses community-based research to develop racial and gender-specific health solutions. Dr. Opara adopts a strengths-based approach 
in her research leveraging social support and cultural elements like racial ethnic pride to help tackle health disparities and empower black urban youth. Currently, she is pursuing a five-year community-based study on how neighborhoods shape substance use and mental health among urban youth. Uh, so delighted to have you here and so happy that you've joined us at Yale in this last year. Thank you. Thank you. And that was a beautiful bio. Wow. Oh, like my God. <laughs> uh, you're too nice to him. You know, I think it was kind of stiff, honestly. The, <laughs> and it, 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 it doesn't really do you justice. But, but let me just say one of the great joys for me of being on this podcast is I, I get to meet Howie's uh, friends and colleagues. And look, it, it, all it takes is to look at the titles of some of your pieces to realize how you're trying to tell the truth and get it real. Where like this paper, it starts with the parents, a qualitative study on protective factors on drug use. A, another one that I saw that I, I really um, I thought was was important had to do with uh, the uh, framework around social media and, and eating disorders. And I wanted to talk to you just for a little bit about your approach, because clearly what you're doing is to 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 get into the the discussions with people who are affected in trying to 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 bring their voices up, amplify what they're saying and help us as researchers learn from them, not to tell them what to do, not to say we've got advanced degrees and we're going to try to provide solutions, but to learn. And so the, the one I wanted to start with was a paper that you wrote that said bullets have no names a qualitative exploration of community trauma among black and latinx youth and and one of the things that you did in this paper was to really bring forth quotes today's a day of quotes and i want to bring up some of the quotes that you brought up but let's let me just do one and then just get your reaction tell us a little bit about how, how you ended up doing this what it was but the quote was from someone that you interviewed in the study, uh, which I really love that, that in, this, in these qualitative methods, how we can hear people. And you said, this person said, quote, and then you have to sit there and worry about sitting in the house and your kids, your siblings, your family are outside. You have to worry about, okay, my kid might get shot. Bullets have no one's name on them. Bullets can hit anybody. And I wonder if you could just reflect on this this study, this method, what you learned and where it's leading you. I'm just so excited to read your stuff. Yeah, thank you so much for your kind words. I really appreciate it. So thank you for bringing up that article. I haven't talked about that study in a, in a while, so I'm really excited to even dive in on it. So that study was actually conducted in Patterson. Um, New Jersey, where I do a majority of my community-based participatory research in that community. And it was a part of a larger grant that I was trained under um, through the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, or SAMHSA. Um, and one of, the, one of the reasons why we did that study was we were trying to figure out, like, what are some resources that youth need in their community to feel successful? And then this, this discussion about trauma, um, about violence, about crime within their communities kind of emerged without us even having to really probe or ask these questions, right? So that's one example. And it's one of the reasons why I love qualitative work because it not only gives youth and young adults a voice to, um, to, to express their concerns, but oftentimes no one's asking them these questions. No one's giving them a space to really talk about the issues that are that are they're facing and how they feel about it. So a lot of times when you just open the room and just ask general questions, you would get so much insight you know, on it. And um, with that quote, 
that quote really inspired me to like title the the paper and to highlight um, bullets have no names because I wanted to show the world that this is what teenagers, people under like 21 are having to deal with and grapple with. And when I did this study, when I actually did the interviews, I had a real like emotional reaction to it that my colleagues didn't necessarily have. Just to add, I was the only black person a part of the study team. I was the only person on the team that um, that lived in an urban community. I was I grew up in Jersey City, which is a primarily urban or was now it's you know it's kind of like changed. But that's a whole that's a whole different story. But when I where I grew up, it was a predominantly black and Hispanic community. So I identified a lot with the stories of youth um, from this community. And um, oftentimes, whenever we do focus groups as a as a group, and I continue to do this with my lab, is that we process what you know the the information. And I noticed that my reaction to the to the stories of youth um, related to violence and gun violence and the things that they're worrying about were very different than the reactions of my um, white counterparts in the room. You know, they thought, they thought it was exciting, like, oh, this is so cool that they're, you know, opening up to us. And for me, it was like, I can't believe that youth are actually going through this and they're not getting any resources to deal with the trauma that they're facing on a day-to-day basis. Like, it's normalized for them to have to deal with worrying about if their mother or their father or their brother or their sister is going to get shot. That shouldn't be normal. Like, you know, this is not something that we should be excited to hear about. We should be, you know, sad and trying to figure out ways that we could actually allow them to to have a childhood where they don't have to worry about these things at such a young age, you know? So, so when I hear those stories, and I hear those quotes. I first thank them for even sharing them with me and trusting me to highlight their voices. But then as a researcher, I do tend to feel a little bit you know, disappointed that this is what they're going through. No, that's. I, I think it speaks to the importance of having someone on the team who can bring that perspective, let alone lead the effort like you did. But let me ask just one quick follow-up on it because what it made me think as I read it was, um, the toxicity of the environment that many of these people are living in. And it's emblematic of some of the effects of structural racism in our society too, because you can provide these kids even opportunities, but, but the stress, the allostatic load, the distraction of just having to worry about safety, let alone the parents and others in there, the grind that it must do to health, the resistance to intellectual uh, cognitive development in young kids. I mean, it made me so sad to think, and it's not that I don't know it, but this paper is so powerful. I really recommend uh, listeners to, to take a look at this paper. You know, it's just such a powerful expression. Was that also part of like what you're thinking when you see this, the toxicity of the environment? It's almost like we think about pollution. We think about air quality, but this is about something else going on in the ecosystem that's that's really having a major effect on people's lives and health. Yeah, absolutely. And this paper, honestly, was the foundation of the grant that I'm actually funded for now to look at neighborhoods impact on substance use and mental health, because it was through this study that made me realize the environment has a huge impact on not just, you know, um, physical health issues like asthma, like most people typically associate asthma with like pollution and things like that, but also mentally, you know, too. Like, why is it that youth of color who live in this community have to be exposed to violence on a day-to-day basis? How come everybody in the room knows at least one person who died from gun violence? And why aren't there resources for them that deal with grieving or, you know, or bereavement groups or things like that? Like, how come, you know, these are things that they 
they never even heard of. And the youth acknowledge, they know that this is something that's unique to their community. They know that if they step outside and go to a predominantly white community, which is not very far from Patterson, like Patterson actually is surrounded by suburban, predominantly white communities. They know if they step outside and go to those communities, they know that there's, there's a huge difference. I mean, they see it you know, just, you know, just by having access to trees and parks and you know, clean roads and streets. They, they know that this is unique to their community. And they often end up feeling hopeless and feeling like the only way for me to survive is to leave. Right. And I and I want to and my goal as a researcher is, of course, to acknowledge environmental racism and structural racism and how that impacts where youth of color often live and what resources they have and the type of things that they're exposed to. But I also want to encourage youth of color living in these communities to identify strengths within their community and to be able to bring in more positive um, resources in that community, because it also says something to when you feel it contributes to this feeling of being inferior, of feeling hopeless and feeling like I live in a community that nobody cares about. And you know, you don't have necessarily the motivation to want to improve that community, you just wanna leave. And if you continue leaving and seeing your community as like as worthless and hopeless, nothing gets changed. You know, nothing gets changed and then it contributes to your self-esteem, your confidence. It's really so it's it's a it's a big part of the work that I'm doing now within neighborhoods and, and Patterson. And I wanna be able to use my my work to bring into communities like New Haven and other predominantly uh, minority communities so that I could be able to work towards this 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 issue of environmental justice. You know, environmental justice actually wasn't even something that I even really had a passion for until I started doing this work and realizing this is this is needed. This is this is all a result of systemic racism and we need to address it. You know, this it's a public health issue. So that's a good segue to my question, which is, you know, I think a lot about people's careers. And when I look at your path, which I haven't discussed yet, you know, I would, in my mind, I would think, oh my God, this is the most intentional path possible. You did a, after your undergraduate degree, you did a public health degree, then you did a master of social work. You actually practiced social work before you went back and got a PhD. Uh, and now you're doing what we call community-based participatory research, which quite frankly, I learned from Harlan about 20 years ago. And, you know, it's on the edge of my knowledge base, but I'm familiar with it. I'd love to hear about what that path was like for you and how it prepared you to do the type of work you're doing now, because there are very few people in this country that have your experience in all those spheres. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. And it's, it's funny to me, I'm a very spiritual person, so I really do believe that God put me on this path, because I'll be honest with you, when I was an undergraduate student, if you would have told me, oh, you're going to be at a Yale professor and you're going to be doing community-based participatory research, I'd be like, no, I'm not. Like, what do you, like, I would think you're lying. You know, so it's, so I think that my path was set because I was in this, this place where I knew that, I knew that I wanted to be an advocate. I knew that I wanted to fight for people that look like me and um, inspired the next generation. That was something that I always knew as a child. I just didn't know how to do it. So after undergrad, I actually wanted to go to law school. I applied to law school, took the LSATs, um, and I specifically wanted to focus on public health law because health disparities was something that was really important to me, especially since my mom passed away at a young age. She had diabetes and she passed away when I was 16 years old. So I knew that health disparities was something I wanted to you know, enter. Um, but I ended up not getting into the law schools that I wanted to get into. Um, so I just decided to just change my path and focus more on public health. 
as I felt like, okay, maybe if I get an MPH, that would give me the, the um, support that I need to do this work. And during my MPH, my father passed away. Um, during my first year, my MPH, he passed away from a heart attack. So it also strengthened me to be like, I really want to engage more in this work because I feel like both of my parents, they died at you know young ages. My mom was 46, my dad was 57. I felt these were ages that they should have been living their lives. They should have been thriving, but they weren't. You know, And I, as I got older, I realized that that in itself is a form of real racism that impacts, you know, people like my parents, Nigerians who are immigrants, and they didn't necessarily know how to navigate the system, you know, with the, of, of healthcare to really, you know, encourage a more healthy living lifestyle. They didn't even know where to go to. That's, that's a whole other conversation that maybe you guys can invite me. We could have a conversation about that. But after, after I, um, did my MPH, I got an internship at Johns Hopkins um, School of Medicine. And that was actually my first experience in doing community-based participatory research. The PI that I worked under as a, as a student, um, Dr. Arlene Butts, she was um, actually working on a community-based study um, related, focusing on asthma in inner city Baltimore. And it was then that I, re I saw for myself with my own two eyes to see PIs actually be in the room with community residents and community residents telling them, we don't want you to do this. This is what we want you to do. You know, we want you to do this. We want you to do that. We don't even really trust you all like that. You know, like, you know, just having these like really hardcore conversations and having PI say, you know what, we're going to do that. We're going to change up, you know, things. And so, so that we could work on not only building trust, but building something that the, that the community wants. And by PI, you mean principal investigator, the person who's leading the study. And I was like, I want to do this. Because as an MPH student, I actually have an MPH in epidemiology. And I felt like with my epidemiology degree, I didn't want to sit behind a desk and, and calculate and do data analysis all day. I wanted to actually like work with people and um, especially children and families and figure out how can we, you know, how can I work with communities? But, but let, me, let me ask you this, because I'm, I'm really uh, interested in, in what kind of advice you got along the way, because Okay. You know, the traditional way is the epidemiology way. When you get out into communities, it's harder, it's messier. And and the journals aren't like the most prestigious journals aren't aren't open to these kind of papers. I mean, BMJ, JAMA, New England Journal, they basically say if you've got this kind of research, don't don't send it our way. But I'm looking at your stuff and I'm going like this is groundbreaking. Like it's so important, but yet you know, everybody wants to see a large end. They don't understand qualitative research about getting to saturation and the thematic approach. How, how have you, what, what's the reception for your work, let alone the fact that you're working on, you know, the edge of race and, and disparities and injustice. And, and while everybody wants to say that they're all in on that, when it comes to publishing this kind of work, there can be resistance. And so what, what's your experience so far in, in trying to get this stuff through? Because I'm reading it and I'm seeing you're on peripheral journals you're not on journals that people would say like, yeah, that's the, that's Broadway. And I think that's a problem with the journals, not with the research. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is a problem with the journals. And I just through my career, you know, I became a social worker. So I understood how to do community engaged work, um, which is different than community based um, research. But I knew the importance of listening to communities and my training. So luckily for me, when I did my Ph.D., I was trained. Um, in a lab that focused solely on CBPR work. But I also had co-mentors. This is why I believe in the beauty of having a team of mentors from different disciplines, because they're able to 
provide me with things that I don't I, I don't I can't necessarily get from one mentor. So with one of my mentors, one of the things that um, as a full professor, he wasn't really he wasn't really he didn't really care too much about publishing multiple times. He was just kind of like just do whatever you want as long as you're doing stuff in the community. He was you know okay with that, right? So that was one you know one mentor I had. But I had another co-mentor who was CBPR but not too not too into it. She focused a lot on you know collecting large and, and just for people listening because the CBPR and you know maybe let's break it down for people like what what is CBPR. And, and what is the difference about this research? Just because still for now, lots of people are like, CBPR, what, what is that? Can, can you just give a little? Oh, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So community-based participatory research is a form of research that allows equitable partnerships between researchers and community members. So actually having community members be on your team in various positions or various ways to be able to guide the study design and the work that you'll be doing with this community and also being flexible enough to change um, the direction of this work that's going to have a direct impact on the community. So, you know, it could look different for, for different people. You could have community members be like your co-PIs, depending on the grant that you're writing. So, you know, just really having this equitable partnership with universities and So here, I'm going to ask you real quick. You mean, you mean researchers didn't talk to the people that they were trying to help? They didn't? That, that it, no. You mean yeah. there's research projects where they don't actually talk to the communities that they're trying to study? Is that right? Absolutely. And those and those are actually seen as more prestigious and more rigorous than the work that we're doing, you know, in yeah, CBPR. Right, right, right. And I will <laughs> No, I'm just saying it like that tongue in cheek, you right. know, I but I'm just saying that that this is a, a real uh, inversion of the usual power pyramid where you basically walk in and say, I'm a researcher out of my way. I just want to study you versus, hey, let's talk and partner. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I think that so to go back to your question about advice that I've gotten and kind of what you know motivates me to do this work is I'm really passionate about this work and um, my qualitative work I do mixed methods so I do qualitative but also quantitative my qualitative work is usually the hardest to publish it takes me the longest to do um, it takes me the longest to publish to get through um, journals and have to go back and forth with reviewers that obviously don't know how to do qualitative research or don't or not well versed in it. Um, and it's the it's the work that I typically have to defend the most um, when it comes to, to 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 journals. But it's work that's important to me, and it's typically the work that when I publish, it's usually the most popular. It's usually the one that people will reach out to me and say, "Oh my goodness! Like I just read your the findings of your article, and I want to talk to you more about it. Can you know? Can we invite you to a class or invite you to a seminar?" It's the work that's really important, but it's 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 just it's unfortunate that it's often devalued by these big journals or you know um, you know and so forth. So I don't. I while I'm aware of that dynamic, I'm also an academic, and I tend to tell the stories of youth using multiple methods. So not just qualitative work, I usually also use quantitative um, measures as well. Um, we're able to collect large samples. And I think that's also a, a misconception that you can't, do, you can't collect large samples for statistical analysis when you focus on one community. You know, you can have a large N um, and be able to, or a large sample size rather, and be able to do quantitative work. So I do a mixture of both. And I think that's what has helped and propelled me to be, you know, where I am. And to be honest with you, I was actually when I got funded for my grant um, through National Institutes of Health, when I applied for it, I swore I wasn't going to get it. I was like, NIH doesn't, doesn't want to hear about my community-based work in Patterson. Like, you know, they don't care about it. 
But not only did I get the grant, I got one. I got one of the best scores, you know, for the grant. So I was grateful that I think that we're moving. So in we can direction. be. We can be hopeful. We can be hopeful. Yeah, I'm so I am hopeful. I am hopeful. Yeah. You know, yeah. like <laughs> I am. I am hopeful. But I think what helps is having that mix of data to show I'm doing qualitative work, but also quantitative yeah. work as well yeah. too. Yeah. Um, can you give us a, a quick sense? I watched the video that you posted from one of your um, interactions with a group of um, young women. I'm just curious, do you, do you see the seeds of success starting to come percolate out from the work that you're doing that others are doing? Can you give us hope about not just the research, but maybe how we might be positively impacting these communities? Yeah, you yeah, know, definitely. So I, so by talking to youth, um, one of the things I, I one of the things I realized is that youth are not only appreciative of being involved in the research um, design, but youth want to hear from other youth, right? So a lot of the, and this is a, a, a big point of why I do community-based work and why I do strength-based work is and race and gender-specific work is that obviously one size fits all approaches to things as complex as like substance use or mental health or HIV prevention just won't work you know and we're, while we have a lot of evidence-based interventions that I respect you know we have to understand these problems are very complex and an intervention or, or a curriculum that's done in schools is not is, is not enough to end an epidemic as complex as substance use or the mental health epidemic that we're seeing now where we're seeing people dying we're seeing young people dying by suicide almost weekly you know, like this is something that needs to be addressed specifically, and we have to have those uncomfortable conversations around racism and sexism and classism and all the isms that are impacting um, youth and young adults individually that aren't being addressed because they're not being talked about. So one of the things that I do in my work is I am actually working on developing peer coaching models. So training youth um, who can be not only more models, but facilitators of interventions that could be done with their peers. Because not only is that more beneficial, it's also sustainable too. So it's something that could actually happen for the next couple of months or years, and it becomes a culture within that community or within, you know, within that school, within that community, to go be able to go to trusted resources who look like you, who are more accessible, to be able to receive um, quality and important information. So that's something that I've learned from youth for years that I'm finally have the um, opportunity to be able to develop um, or work on developing these interventions. Well, 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 let me thank you for the the time you took. Howie said you're amazing, but I'd say he'd under, he understated it by a lot. Like you are <laughs> really, really amazing. And, I appreciate and, you. And also, I'm going to give you a call because I want I want to work with you. I, I'm I'm going to like I'll be your assistant or something. But I mean, it's like. <laughs> I, I, I really think I want to follow up with you because I do need I'm, an assistant, so, I'm, I'm inspired yeah. by what you're doing and, and I want to figure out that I've got anyway some ideas. But let me just say really, really appreciate you joining us and uh, and uh, look forward to seeing all the great things you do in the future. And you've taught me a lot about how to write a, a snappy uh, title for my papers and I'm going to try to improve my, my titles too as a result. Wonderful. And, and we will. And, and with your consent, we will have you back. We'd love to have you back. Oh, in the yeah, future. absolutely. So I would love thank to. Thank you so this, much. This was yeah. fun. Thank you so thank much you. for giving me the platform. I, I appreciate it. <laughs> Harlan, what's something that inspires you or keeps you up at night? Well, Howie, I think this week I'd like to maybe just reflect for a moment on something that's that's keeping me up that I've been pondering a bit. And, and that's the, the regulation of what's being called software as a medical device. And... And what we're gonna do about the proliferation of tools that are appearing online and in different places and in medical records, 
that are seemingly available to help guide physicians and patients to better decision making, but whose regulation is is quite questionable, and, and so leading to the the issue of what can you trust. Recently, there was a published study that determined that Epic Systems Corporation's sepsis model. So Epic is the one of the very common medical record systems that exists in many hospitals, and they had put together what they call a sepsis model. So sepsis is a medical condition where you have a rampant infection that's life-threatening. And what you want to be able to know is when people come in to the emergency department, for example, you know, to be able to make the diagnosis rapidly, because if we can administer antibiotics quickly, uh, then maybe we have a chance of turning it around. Every minute counts when people are desperately ill like that. And so they had put together a a model. It was software. It, It was a calculation that was intended to help doctors make decisions and, and inform them about people's risk. But, but when this was subjected to rigorous study by an independent academic group, they saw that, in fact, this software uh, performed poorly at identifying patients at risk for, for sepsis. And that actually compared with, with standard workflows within the emergency department, it could lead to a false reassurance that people didn't have sepsis and then ultimately to delays in treatment and, and even affect ultimately outcomes. Now, Epic said that they had internally validated this in, in 2015, but, but where's the oversight? I mean, if this were a new drug, it, it would undergo very rigorous review. There would be lots of data. People would, would, would examine it and try to decide what to do. Devices, as you and I know, and it's a, it's a totally different topic, but I feel that you know, devices themselves aren't, aren't subject to the same kind of rigor, rigorous evaluation that drugs are. And, and that, that's causing a problem right now. We can spend time on that at, at a different episode. But then software is kind of being put into this category and, and is often getting a pass. And, and then there's other software, by the way, that's on the web that's supposed to help people make decisions about their health that, that is to also totally getting a pass. So actually, we, we put together a piece, a group of us uh, that's going to appear in the BMJ with some recommendations for what we think should be in federal legislation. There's a big law that's being put together called Cures 2.0. There was a Cures 1.0 that was put together at the end of the Obama administration, which which is intended to try to guide regulatory approaches. And many of us think that it's time for the FDA to, to really take a very close look at how these 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 software programs are proliferating and, and to what extent they, they need to be regulated. So this is uh, something on my mind a lot. I think it's a problem to solve, but uh, it, it's something that could could cause cause problems and even danger if we don't get ahead of it. So so uh, anyway, that's on my mind. How, how about you? What's on your mind this week? So you and I were both on a private email thread about the challenges of getting the population vaccinated in Ghana and, and a bunch of other countries, but Ghana was specifically mentioned. Um, and you know, I learned a lot from our colleagues about those low vaccination rates, the vast efforts at misinformation, specifically in Ghana, but also in other sub-Saharan African nations and the willingness of people to use religion and lies to scare people from getting vaccinated. So I was really heartened just randomly looking into this. I was heartened to read about a recent effort by uh, Sister Lucy Homatau, who's the Superior General of the Sisters of Mary, Mother of the Church, 
in Ghana to fight against misinformation. It turns out she's also an OBGYN, a physician, uh, and together with similar folks locally and in other sub-Saharan African nations uh, has convinced thousands to get vaccinated. And it seems to me, and I think it has seemed to most of us from the beginning, that the more that local efforts can be driven by local individuals, the more likely they are of success. I am unlikely to convert a, quote, ruby red Republican from the Deep South from being vaccine hesitant to getting vaccinated. But local churches and other trusted folks can do it. And I remain hopeful that these efforts will spread and that they will grow. Yeah, and I think that, of course, consistent with uh, the kind of things Paul Farmer was trying to do. So back to the beginning, you know, about the dedication of this podcast. I think that's a great topic for him. I also think when we heard Professor Opara talk about her work in the community, the importance of having people on the teams who are from the community, who understand the community, can relate to the exactly. community. And uh, and I think there's a really great point, Howie, that has it is relevant to the pandemic, but relevant to to anything we want to do in population health. It's it's are we really relating and and working together? And back to to Paul Farmer's quote about partnership. You know, are we really trying to forge partnership, or are we trying to get people to do what we want them to do without? taking the time to listen and understand where they're coming from. Right. I couldn't agree more. You've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Krumholtz and Howie Foreman. So how did we do? To give us your feedback or to keep the conversation going, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at HMKYALE. That's at HMKYale. And I'm at the Howie. That's at T-H-E-H-O-W-I-E. Health and Veritas is produced with the Yale School of Management. Thanks to our researcher, Sherry Wang, and to our producer, Miranda Schaefer. Talk to you soon, Howie. Thanks very much, Harlan. Talk to you soon.